Is your new cycle turning whole around? There is very so much information out there. Do you know to turn where in a storm of sounds? The hotel called Earth is where we are, and the kind porter are you and me together. Welcome to your chosen lobby. Ring the bell to get started over. Go ahead. You can see the bell inside, child. Reach out and touch the bell in front of you. Thank you for participating in our survey. Your results are being logged and calibrated, and your monitoring devices will be returned to you at the end of the tour. I'm your Commissioner of Sewers, the ill-gotten golem of these hallway musings, Jackie Cotillard, and I'm very pleased to have you here with us again for this propaganda hour or two we have prepared for the ears on the left and the right of you. Our cuddliest and most respectful thanks go to Substrate Radio and the gorgeous people behind it. If you're hearing us there, I'm so glad to be with you here. Every day and night they hold superb programs, and very soon I'd like the luxury of highlighting those programs in a special crossover episode. In the meantime, find what you like at their site, substrateradio.com, and hit them on all the platforms. On the subject, the newly heralded staff behind this operator boldly welcomes you as well. Do our new concierge a favor and leave us a review or a like or whatever the thing may be, and let us know you're out there. It helps us a lot and goes toward forming the interlocking network of souls we aim to please here. Thank you. Forever. And ever. 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 As a storm of sounds indeed draws closer to us all, and the clouds seem to hang ominous over these parts, public and private, our dear city, and perhaps yours too, is facing up to a corrupt administration, hell-bent on privatizing and dismantling everything the people depend on, as Birmingham's mayor, Alabama's governor, and the federal Caesar continue to lie through every teeth. Soon enough we'll speak to informed and active agents for good on this matter, bolstered by our independent research department, but for now, for the last time in this season, before treading into dangerous waters. We have the pleasure of an audience with a blessed musician and brother in improvisation to give us good feelings and bright things to think on, as the sun dips ever lower toward the roiling American sea. Our friend's name is Nabil, and he hails from the Birmingham land of Flesnoik's fame, carrying with him a wealth of knowledge and a history of personal, improvised, and otherwise music playing as well as a great deal of heart. We were joined in a calming, groovy spot so I could gather some of that heartful past and chat with him on the mystery of why we play the sound game before he heads off to the land of Sanders to find solace with the ground. I know it's a great interview when I end up warm and misty-eyed by the end, and this conversation and its ensuing collaborative music moment left me floating and relaxed the whole night through. And I learned a great deal. On a sacred farm outside the town where our friends and found family get on down, we gathered ourselves around the instruments there and made the neighbors well aware of the joy and terror coming to bear. We made our music after the talking, and before we enter the interview chamber, you'll hear an entry from his solo work, 
titled Unfair. Right after these news bits from the mouth of a me, future set from the writing I read, but past from the head that your ears think they see. You have my deepest gratitude for being with us again in this folding candle at the heart of a weird lantern. Words fail. Let's hear them tell us the news from beyond the veil. Stick around like a body stuck to the spinning ground. We have so much to see and so little time. Your headlines for September are brought to light by the hard work of the disembodied entity called Syzygy Group, member FDIZ. Sunday. In this year of the plague, the dog breath runs hot. The tyrant in debt claiming gold he has not. Tongues doubling themselves in the mouths of the rats, holding Cyrillic checks to stave off their collapse. Monday. Move over, move over. Let wisdom take cover. The sky is a smokescreen eyes turning to mother. As symbol words scramble and strafe in the air, the quick turn to center, the learned despair. Tuesday. When the world catches fire, no truth can dispel it. The power to blame lies inside of the zealot. With no heart to ply with morality's bargain, the devil inside them will rise to the challenge. Wednesday. What glutted despotic financier's reins whip pale smogging horses to mail us our chains? One click by one step advanced to your door from boundless warehouses paved over the poor. Thursday. Who grind them? and warp living bodies for tender, for glory necrotic, for glee of the spender, who speaks with his rot through the ragged combine to tie up our brothers and sisters divine. Friday. But the trees and the birds, our friends bitterly crying, the magical world that is painfully dying, let malice, that cancer, spill the gut of the monster, and the acid inside eat away for our answer. Saturday. From the faces of countrymen, I cannot belie the hateful confusion that steams in their eyes. They are sure of their power neath the boots of the master. As we steer for the iceberg, counting days till disaster. This said report was paid for by Jesus Christ.
you talking about an ancient italian curse was it yeah italian it reminds me of a book that i read last year so there is this uh composer named uh, carlo gesualdo we're talking about 15th century magical composer just acapella music hmm. you know he was the prince of venozza you know and he had his own estate and everything and he literally composed music to be sung for him and his private guests alone. Huh. Nobody else was allowed to hear it. You see, he murdered his first wife and he had a curse put on him. Uh, he had a hex put on him by a group of witches, you know, in the area that were somehow related to the wife that he murdered. I'm not really sure, but it's the typical thing. He found his wife in bed with another man and uh, murdered both of them. You know, he was the Prince of Venoza, so he got away with whatever he wanted to. <laughs> The wild thing is, man, is that the music that he wrote, theoretically speaking, you would find it coming out at the beginning of the 1900s. You know, for example, like he was a big, big uh, influence for Stravinsky, you know, and Stravinsky kind of changed the game for everybody, sure. theoretically speaking. And after Stravinsky, people were like at their wits end. And then they started coming out with the 12 tone serialism. They started coming out with all the different weird types of modern um, composition because of Stravinsky. And he just pushed music theory there. But his, one of his biggest influences was Jeswaldo, you know, wow. and uh, he was, he was kind of one of the main composers that actually resurrected Jeswaldo's work to be part of like the normal canon, you know, but I'm serious. If you ever get, he has, he has like six books of madrigals. And if you ever get a chance, you know, listen to like the sixth, the sixth book of madrigals. I mean, I was pretty shocked at what I'm hearing to think that it came out of the 15th century, you know? Wow. So it's pretty cool stuff. Where did you find that? Okay, Jesualdo was a, was a contemporary of Claudio Monteverdi. And Monteverdi was like the shining star of Italian a cappella motets, you know, all um, just singing groups. You know, he was like the rock star of their day, you know, Claudio Monteverdi. 
And Jaswaldo knew him well, but at the same time, Jaswaldo, I think he was a witchy dude myself. There was no like talk about that, but I think he separated from everybody. So like if you take music theory courses or music history courses, they'll mention Jaswaldo, but they won't talk about anything serious about him. They just kind of mention him like, oh, he was a contemporary of Monteverdi, but Monteverdi always gets the light, you know, he deserves it. His music is awesome, you know. But Jesualdo is the one that kind of slipped through the cracks, basically, you know. So I've always heard about him throughout these years. And then, sure enough, I was in a bookstore and I saw a book called The Jesualdo Hex. And I'm like, damn, is that Carlo Jesualdo? And sure enough, it was, you know. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Well, we're five minutes in and we've already got excellent stuff to play. (laughs) I'll stretch it out for 45 minutes and sing my curses over it or something. (laughs) Uh, I'm very glad to be talking to you. Yes, likewise. This has been a long time coming, recouping work that I should have done a couple years ago, but I'm sure in the interim, important and interesting stuff has happened for you that'll come up. The whole thing will prove out like a wonderful cake. Yes. Um, actually, you're, you're very much right. Uh, one of the most exciting uh, creative periods of my life has been within the last year and a half, actually. And you're about to step into a whole new thing. Correct. So do you want to start a little bit back? Yeah, we can uh, we can start a little bit back. First off, I wanted to clarify where was the fr- I was thinking about where is the first time that I met you? The first time I recall seeing you was at the Soft Rock Bungalow. Yeah, probably. Is so. that correct? Is that when we kind of first? Uh, that would probably other? would have been a Flesnoix function. Well, uh, well, actually, I feel like it was the very first burlesque thing that you guys did. Yeah. Uh, in the in the basement of the Soft Rock, wasn't that the first one that y'all did? Yeah. Uh, so I think I mean I know I was there, but I want to say that that was the first day that I met you and talked with you, and uh, maybe we just connected on like maybe a, a creative level, if you will, you know. Yeah. And I think very shortly after that, uh, we played, well, I was doing Fliss Nooks a bunch, and then, uh, and then you started coming over a bunch as well mm-hmm. and playing with us. So, but yes, a lot is, uh, a lot has kind of gone down, you know, and, uh, that was, Fliss Nooks was awesome because that was really the first time that I had a steady weekly thing where we would go and just do this thing, which is improv jamming. And I'm sure many people know Jess Marie and Walker and Rodney and and Brent and all the people that kind of came in and out of Flusnoix, even before I got there, actually. Mm -hmm. But that period of my life, like, you know, showed me the value of having that weekly exercise. And it made me want to do it daily by myself. And then once a week, meeting up with those guys and just jamming, ah, man, that's, uh, that's something that I think everybody in the world needs to do, you know? And everybody can. Everybody can. That's the coolest part about it. You know, literally anybody can. And, um, you know, once you, uh, drop these ideas of, uh, you know, what people think a musician should do or what a musician is all about. And you realize that, you know, everybody has a heartbeat. Everybody has rhythm inherently in them and it's worth fleshing out. It's worth experiencing, you know? Yeah. But a lot of that was, um, where I kind of started getting this value of, and letting go of a lot of, you know, you go to school, you get theory. I mean, I had two, uh, actually four semesters of music history being like, two semesters to start from ancient music to modern music. And then the next two semesters was 
going back to ancient music more in depth to modern music, you know? And so like all of that was really cool because I do like history and I like finding out the sources of things. But also you get all that information in your head and you want to assimilate it. And then you get to realize that, damn, like this is just information and this has nothing to do with me being a musician. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This might give me context to be a musician, but you can be a musician without knowing that stuff. Yeah. If you're <laughs> you not know? pursuing through composing SATB, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. those are all rules that got established. People figured them out slowly and then they all got thrown away yeah hey i'll tell you what um bill evans the um the jazz pianist he has there's an interview with him on youtube and um he said one of the coolest things and he's kind of summed up music history being that long time ago before notation was an actual thing music notation you know you had these you know just giants of sacred music that were literally just improving all day long yeah. you know they're improving on they and they show their singers how to improv and then eventually you know you had somebody who started coming up with things that there's like the they call it guido's hand where they first started like they would take all the knuckles of your hands which is 12 and they would assign uh different notes to them so wow. you know and that's how he would transmit his music to the singers he would literally have and we're talking about uh do re mi fa sol la ti do you know this is the beginnings of solfege but you know all of the all of the accidentals in between all of the all of the 12 notes in what we know as our scale he would just have them literally write them on their knuckles wow. and so he would show them the pattern of where to point in their fingers and they would sink you know what i'm saying I've never heard of that. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah, it's called uh, Guido's Hand. It's from Guido, Guido di Arezzo, you know. And, uh, and it's cool. I mean, I, I think all of that is great. But to bring it back to Bill Evans, he was talking about that when notation started, it got to be its own little thing. And people were like, well, we can make notation better like this. Or we can add this. Or we can start doing this that way. And people got so zoned on how can we notate music properly? And then you get to the point where you get to Bach and he comes out with the well-tempered clavier and he's like, well, here's 12 keys and I can prove that on one instrument being the piano that we can play music in all 12 keys with one instrument, you know, and, and, and furthered uh, musical notation and, and further, 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 you get to Stravinsky, you get to Schoenberg, 12-tone method, all of that. But then after it's all been fleshed out, you get jazz and you get back to improv again. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's like, all right, fuck all this musical notation, you know, let's just fucking improv. You know, let's, we all know what music is by now. It's been fleshed out for hundreds and hundreds of years. We know what this music theory is. And then you get this freeform kind of jazz that started happening just, and it actually is more it is more similar to where the music started, you know? So the whole system of notation and coming up with notation, while it is super interesting, I mean, I dig on it a bunch, but it's all dispensable, man. Every, every culture has their own way of notating music, you know? And if you want to think about any system of notation and if you want to adapt your music to it, you can. But none of it's really... I can come up with my own system of notation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, which I have a little bit. <laughs> Tell me about that. Um, well, it's within the context, actually, of uh, the most recent project I've been working on. So, you know Paul and you know Calliope. Yeah. I've been working with them for the last year. Uh, I've known Paul a little bit longer than I've known Calliope. The three of us have... I'm really hesitant to like talk about this because the thing that we have 
created, which is a story. We've created a story. The three of us, we have written a story and we really didn't know where it was going to go. You know, when I, I like to read a lot. So initially I'm thinking that I want to turn it into a book. Paul is more familiar with musical theater. So he wanted to turn it into that. And it's, you know, we don't really know where it's going to go, but we did know that we had to like flesh out the story and all the details to this story. We started telling, like after we got the, the whole story and the details all worked out, we started telling the story to friends. And damn, it just took on a whole new level of fun, man. You know, the story just became like real. So, and the story takes about like two and a half hours or two hours to kind of go through it, depending on how many details we want to throw in there. Yeah. I mean, that's epic poetry at that point. Mm, I like that. See, that's the thing. Um, now, where does the system of musical notation come in? Is that this whole story has music from beginning to end. All, all of these characters in the story, not all of them have their own themes, but the themes that we do have for the main characters are being kind of, and really this is where Paul shines. He's, he's brilliant at orchestration and he knows a lot about orchestration. I, I tended to focus a little bit more on vocal music and guitar music when I was in school, but Paul was all about understanding symphony, you know, understanding where that came from and how people like Beethoven actually changed the symphony for what it is, you know? So I can sum up the story in two sentences. Would you like to hear? Sure. All right. So this story is about a civilization of birds that live in a cave and they do not know that they can fly. The main character, her name is Calliope Hummingbird. Of course it is. <laughs> and uh, Calliope Hummingbird leaves the cave, discovers her true nature as a bird, and realizes what it means to fly and to sing, and then comes back and liberates the rest of the birds from the cave. Story done. I talked to Calliope a year or more ago, mm. and that was when she was fully in the songbird, bringing love to people, yes. this group dynamic and giving joy through music. And it's so interesting that, and Paul made his way down here a year and a half ago. A mm, little less than that. So, even, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you coming from this background of both education and improvisation through Flusnoiks and what that taught you, mm. just the, the meeting of all, the, it's, it's so perfect that that comes together. I can't wait. I can't wait to know more about that. Yeah. I don't well, want to let the cat out of the bag yet for you, but that's well, amazing. That's the thing is that, man, we've been working on it for a long time and we've been working on the music um, that accompanies it. And we have uh, about 13 characters in the story that kind of play a pivotal part, you know, and we've been working it together. So like I said, we don't really, we don't really know what this is going to become in the future. Now, for me, it's actually become very something very, very special because throughout this process, I've really gotten to understand what the value of not just creativity is in the human life, but to be able to be creative with other human beings yeah. and what that means, you know, on a very um, intimate level, you know. In the past, I tend to have ideas and appreciate them for what they are. And I never really made a point to share it with people, you know, every now and then I'll have friends or cousins that want to hear my music. I'm like, yeah, here, listen to it, you know, but I never was really too interested in sharing my music. And 
Um, this is one thing that I've learned working on this project with Paul and Calliope is that, so the story is called The Flying Bird. Working on The Flying Bird with them has really shown me that this is, this is where uh, I can truly be my best self with other people, is to do these things with people, you see. So when we talk about the story for what it's worth, now don't get it twisted, I love the fucking story and I can break it down for you like detail by detail, but when it comes down to it, the story is not the most important thing, it's the fact that I did it with people. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's not my story. It's the three of our stories. You see what it's the, the yeah. three. You understand yeah, now what I'm saying? Yeah, it lives between you. Exactly. And, um, and it's almost like a, uh, it's just like a record in time, if you will. You know, I don't need to have pictures of me and Paul and Calliope together because we have the flying bird, you know? Yeah. Coming up with it, with the story and coming up with the songs. And man, we... The three of us wrote some of this music to the story before we even came up with the flying bird, you know? It's like, and this is how it kind of worked out just so beautifully is that a lot of, uh, a lot of things that were happening in my life and Paul's life and Calliope's life, they made the story happen in a sense. They made its way into the story, but really it's like the story wouldn't have happened if we didn't live our lives, you know, the way that we were doing. Cause I mean, we met up, uh, for at least maybe a month or two before we started doing the flying bird, maybe even more than that, three or four months. I'm not sure, but we had great musical experiences before the flying bird. And then all of a sudden the story started coming into fruition. And, and then we're like, shit, man, you remember that song that we wrote? It's like part of the story and we didn't even know it. You know what I'm saying? So the story is told in three parts. The first part, you get an idea of what life in the cave is like. The second part, you see Calliope Hummingbird leave the cave and learn the things that she needs to learn, you know? So, and this is like the main song that we wrote together before the story happened. It goes like this lyrically. And actually this is what happened. Paul and Calliope and I went down to the river right by her house. Calliope is like marching in her badass little self, you know, she's just having a good time. And I start, you know, and Paul starts singing and these lyrics just come out of him. I went down to the river to go and catch my bread. I went down the river to go and catch my bread, but I found my soul instead. I went up to the mountain to go and find my head, but I found my soul instead. I went down to the prairie to let the blood run red, but I found my soul instead. And I went into the forest to learn how to make my bed, and I found my soul instead. You know, and this is the song that came out of that experience going down to the river with Paul and Calliope. You know, we, we wrote the song just in a flash like that. And then we started, you know, we started working on this story and we're like, holy shit, like this is what Calliope Hummingbird's training was all about, you know? When she leaves the cave, she goes down to the river and she learns how to sing. She goes up to the mountain and learns how to fly from the eagle. She goes into the prairie and she learns how to hunt from the woodpecker. And then she goes into the forest and she runs into wild hummingbirds. And she actually learns how to use her beak to collect nectar, how to create a little hummingbird nest, you know? And so the story just kind of wrote itself out of us 
just being creative with each other, you know? So it's a cool experience, man. I really, I really treasure it for what it is. So I'm leaving town soon and we're going to do a performance of this, this Thursday night. Oh, wow. Okay. Here. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) We're going to do it here. What can I say? Like I said, like, we don't really know what this thing is, what it's going to be in the future, if it's anything in the future. But it's like, as it is now, we just want to tell the story to our friends. You know what I'm saying? And we want to be able to just go through it. And, you know, we're going to talk it. We're going to sing it. We're going to fuck up. We're going to laugh with each other. But above all, you know, it's not like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, the performance of the Flying Bird is about to start. Yeah. Turn off your cell phones. You know, it's not anything about that. You know, it's something that we've gotten to do with each other. And we just want to share it, you know? Yeah. So, um, Yes, if you're not doing anything Thursday night, you should come and check it out for sure. Oh, I'm going to make up some excuse to get off work so I can come be here. <laughs> Amazing. I can't wait. So you're headed up to Vermont. Heading up to Vermont. To start, I guess, a new chapter of whatever yes. that creative path is going to be. Well, it is. And this is, uh, for me, this is how the blurring of life and art really start happening for me right now. So I've been paying attention to the things that I eat and to the things that I put into my body and put into my brain and everything for the last, you know, two years, like being very proactive about my intentionality with things. So I am going to be going to Vermont to work for an organic vegetable farm up there, do that for a year. Essentially, this whole year is going to be a way for me to just not have to fucking deal with money, man. (laughs) Bills rent, getting a job, dealing with this, dealing with that, emergency funds, everything. It's just like, man, I'm I'm done with it. My relationship to money has always been kind of fucked. You know what I'm saying? That's, so, that's universal. But, <laughs> but you, no, you found a way to take the labor that you do and turn it into something that, or had the, had the resource to be able to make that real. Exactly. And this is kind of the conviction, man, is that I do, I do enjoy using my body and I like working and I like busting a sweat and I like taking a shower at the end of the day and fucking feeling the pain in my legs and enjoying it, you know, but I hate that it's always for a price. How much are you going to pay me an hour? You know, how much can my labor be exploited to make you money? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I'm going up to this farm and, you know, by the looks of it, the farm looks pretty legit. You know, it's a family farm and they have people coming in and doing this work trade all year round. But beyond all, I mean, I don't know these people. I've I've FaceTimed with them three times, you know, (laughs) and we've gotten the, the logistics all set up. But I don't really know these folks and they don't really know me. It's a platform for me to be able to just get my mind off of dealing with money so that I can actually pay attention to how can I manifest a fulfilling life doing what I want to do. And I really don't know, man. I mean, it's like, do I live off the grid? Do I completely get rid of money? Do I keep money in, but I'm still scrounging for the rest of my life? You know, it's like, I don't, I don't have these answers and I need a year to kind of get away from money to figure out what exactly I want to do with the rest of my life regarding finances. You see, man, this world isn't getting easier to live in, you know, especially with the concept that money dominates everywhere. I hate it, man. Yeah. I got to figure that out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're taking the personal journey to, like you said, remove yourself from that to give you the space to be able to contemplate, to work and put yourself through a process so that 
whatever happens in the next year, not to say you'll float above it and be untouched by it, but to be able to step back from that, to be able to see things from a purer standpoint where you're not being poked and prodded by all this, you're just able to move through and then come out the other side with what I had feel is the wisdom that we need to be able to survive and change things so that we can move through it. Yeah. I may be wrong. It's a, you said it's a work study program, but there's a creative aspect to all of that too. Is there not? There is. So, um, at the farm, because they do have a lot of people work trading all throughout the year in order to provide a place for people to relax and kick back, they have a ceramic studio, they have a wood shop and they have a metal shop there. I do ceramics and I work with clay and, and I love working with clay. I like working in visual arts, you know, within the context of visual arts, I've spent a lot of time with clay and ceramics and with drawing. Essentially, I am going to be going up there to develop a lot of ideas that I've had with ceramics. You know, I just have not had the place to develop things, if you will, you know, and I'm saying place like in a very uh, spatial sense, but I also mean like place in a mind space sense, you know. Again, I can't be within the, within the context of having bills and paying those bills and then having relationships with friends and family. And, and I got a lot of family. Family takes up a lot of my time, you know. And I say that not in a negative sense. I love my family for sure. But there's just a lot of family members that I have, you know. And I love them all for sure. There's a lot of brain space that it takes up, you know, to be considered of, of the people that are your flesh and blood. You got to bite your tongue a lot when people are talking and can't, you know, but you want to be with people. So um, within the context of that, I, you know, I have to be saturated to do things. If I'm not saturated, I can't keep my train of thought there all the time. That's, this is a personal thing for me, you know. So when I go up to Vermont, I'll basically be taking over their ceramic studio. And uh, I say taking over, but just for the fact that it's not like an artisan residency program in the sense they don't have ceramicists coming there and working all the time. The people that do work in the ceramic studio there are people that are just trying to lay back, fuck around with clay for the first time or the millionth time. I'm not really sure. I don't know the people that are working there right now, you know. But essentially, that was kind of what I talked to the owners of the farm about, was that I want to come up there and make an, a concerted effort, not only just to develop clay and uh, a new creative body of work, but it will be the first time in my life that I will be venturing into social media. I would like to start uh, an Instagram account and make it successful. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, I need to be saturated in that. I don't really spend too much time on the internet right now, so it's never been a priority of mine to get a social media account. I mean, don't get it twisted. I mean, I, I use the internet. I just don't uh I just don't spend that much time on it. So now I would like to spend time on the internet and uh really start um, for lack of a better words, you know, I'd, I'd like to start getting creative with uh, what I'm putting online and, you know, start generating some relationships in that manner. You know, I've never done that before. And this is the first time in my life where I'm, I'm 35 now, you know, so <laughs> it's the first time in my life now where I'm like actually okay and open with it, you know, 
And uh, it's something that I really, you know, I'm kind of excited about in that sense. Fantastic. You asked if this is something that I do in a location or if there's a consistency to that, I guess. And in a way there is with the whole hotel concept, the operator's desk is always somewhere. The, the metaphysical desk is somewhere that I can pull between or pull alongside somebody that I want to talk to. And that's the space that that occupies for the moment. So before we get into your musical history, I want to highlight some of the projects you've worked on before and give you a chance to talk about your perspective on like your talent. Are you like a vivid dreamer? Yes, uh, when I go through transitions in my life. And because now a transition is kind of coming up for me, I've been having some wild dreams. And I actually had a a nightmare recently for the first time in a very long time. Like the first time since probably I was maybe 12 or 13, where I actually woke up and I was very glad that I woke up, you know? But yes, when I'm going through transitions, I, I get some, I don't know what they are. Dreams, visions, I don't really know. Yeah. I spent a little time recently listening to uh, information about ayahuasca shaman and ceremonies, mm. uh, just that whole world, and they treat all of it like the same thing. If you, They gave the example of, oh, I saw a jaguar the other day. Okay, does that mean you saw a jaguar in the jungle, you saw it in the astral during a ceremony, or you saw it in a dream? It's all the same right. kind of thing. Have you ever had what I would call a hotel dream? The stereotype is long hallways that are disconnected or don't seem to have any purpose spaces without any kind of personal context that like platonic spaces disconnected scenes that seem to be within that kind of structure Mm. Uh, what comes to my mind is a recent dream that i had and um, i really don't know what this is read as but i didn't see the transitions but i kept on finding myself in these different rooms I don't remember getting from one room to the next, but what was common within every room was there was an entity, a person, you know, it looked like a human, but it was something that I just couldn't recognize. And it was in every one of those rooms. I'm seeking to corroborate something that I've heard before. Um, Did you get the sense, was it automaton-like? Was there an intelligence behind it or did it seem like it was kind of empty? No, it, it did seem like there was an intention with that person or with that being. But uh, like I said, I woke up super confused about it. And I, I've never worked on my dream life. And that's something that I would in the future like to tend to. So my issues with remembering a lot of it, right when I wake up, it's very hard to remember. Sure. But like I said, a lot of dreams recently have been very vivid. So some things just get impressed on your brain, you know. That's probably the closest uh, dream I would have had from going hallway to hallway or room to room, something like that. Gotcha. I'm glad to be able to touch on that briefly. So kind of your history in music, how did you get involved with Flusnoix and, and what was your experience with music before that? Well, we can say before that, I went to University of South Alabama and I studied music there from 2006 and I graduated in 2011. That is what it is. Again, I mean, music is cool. And at that point, you know, especially when I was a freshman, this is in Mobile. So I had a group of friends that we played music. It was just three of us. And we were, you know, just playing a bunch of places and having fun. But 
you know, I'm like in freshman music theory and I'm, that's like freshman music theory is Monday through Friday, 8am or 9am, depending on the school, you know, and I was just skipping class and skipping class and skipping class. And then I get, you know, to a reality check at the end of my freshman year, like, damn, my grades are bad, you know? It was like I had to make a decision. It's like, do I want to stay in the group and really flesh the group out and drop out of college? Or do I want to just forget about the group and do college, you know? And, well, the group was made out of a, uh, was made of me, my girlfriend, and my best friend. Well, girlfriend and best friend end up hooking up with each other. Yeah. So I end up getting the answer given to me right then and there, you know? Right. So, you know, went through college and it took me about, Man, it wasn't until really my uh, like end of so uh, end of junior year into my senior year where I realized like, holy shit, man, this is actually really cool to work with music like this, you know. And I did a senior recital uh, in composition, and uh, I wrote pieces. I wrote a piano piece, wrote a piece for voices with guitar accompaniment, electronic piece with guitar accompaniment as well, piece for guitar and flute, and all of it was either guitar or voice oriented most of the time. It was a, a big accomplishment. It wasn't the coolest music in the world, but you know, it was, uh, it was a great accomplishment for me. Yeah. And then I moved back to Birmingham. Just kind of had to figure out my life a little bit there. Were you from here originally? I was from here, yeah. Okay. And uh, like when I was eight, I did drum lessons. I stopped maybe when I was 12 or 13 because I found uh, guitar. And I never did guitar lessons. I just, you know, bought guitar magazines and just, you know, got sucked into the world of heavy metal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and it was cool. I mean, I'll, uh, you know, I'll if you put on a Pantera album right now, I'll start thrashing, you know. But, but there's only so far that heavy metal is going to take you. You know what I'm saying? And once I started getting into school and really seeing how music can be fleshed out in a lot of different ways, you know, I started as a guitar major, but within a year, like I made friends with some of the composition students. I was like, damn, man, I could do a lot more than just guitar stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that's, um, that kind of led to the composition degree. So, so this has always been something that from a young age you were interested in. Did you think it was going to end up here? Or did you think it was going to be something that you like put your life into? Nah, no, that's really more of a, more of my, uh, let's say challenges as a, as a child. I just didn't really, I was very turned off to the world, man. I, I, I was very just taking things as they go. And, and I didn't really uh, impose my opinion on anybody. And a lot of people, nobody would really push me as an individual because I was very young and I was very, um, you know, just easy going, anything happened. So nobody really pushed me. And I really, uh, for example, I went to like a Christian school here in Glen Iris, you know, and I was given the opportunity to go to the Alabama School of Fine Arts in ninth grade. And I just chose not to do it, <laughs> you know, for no fucking reason, just being lazy, didn't want to leave my couple of friends in the Christian school, you know, whatever, not a big deal, but I ended up going to college and studying ceramics and music. So I could have been doing that since ninth grade. Who cares? Or maybe you know? something completely, you know, it, it worked out, so to speak. Hey, you know, honestly, um, I don't really care to think about regrets because that really uh, just roots me in the past. Sure. You know what I'm saying? And so there's, there's no concept of regret for me within that field, you know, because you're right. I mean, shit, I'm here working on The Flying Bird with Paul and Calliope and definitely if I would have done that, then, you know, 
different things wouldn't have happened. So I'm very, I'm very thankful for where things are right now. But, mm-hmm. you know, I had a little bit of music stuff going on when I was a kid. And I was really, to answer your question, I was just more fascinated with heavy my my world was heavy metal so just thinking about this music and like god man how are they coming up with this stuff and i really didn't even have anybody to branch me out into a lot of stuff like i didn't even i didn't even get down with radiohead until i was like 2005 or 2006 or something that's when i started listening to radiohead you know so i get very i hone down on things man when i find something that i dig I honed down, so I, I got into heavy metal and just started tracing it backwards all the way to Black Sabbath and all the way, you know, to even a couple of things before then. But yeah. you got saturated. You get saturated. That's that's how I work, you yeah. know. Um, I didn't start listening to Neil Young till about four years ago, and when I did, I was like, God damn, I can't stop listening to Neil Young. Yeah, you know? I can't believe there was a time before this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but that's kind of how I work. And so I didn't really think about the future when I was a kid. I didn't think about what I wanted to do with music. I was just more enjoying, you know, playing uh, Metallica and Pantera tunes and Soundgarden. I loved Soundgarden, you know, stuff like that. So Sweet. So somebody who really helped me open up musically, actually the reason why I ended up in Flusnoix. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Ned Mudd. Is that name familiar to you? No. He worked with LaDonna and Davey a lot okay. in the 90s. So I guess there was like a really, a more notable festival, which was the Improv Fest of 1996. Yeah. Ned gave me a CD of that. And I met Ned at Whole Foods. I worked at Whole Foods. And what I ended up doing with Ned that really I enjoyed is that he just, he loved having me come over his house and he would every time i come over his house he would have a different instrument that he dredged out from his basement and he'd be like yeah just play it man i was like what do you want me to play just just play it you know and so i'll play it and he'd record it and and that's what we ended up doing i'd go there for two three four five hours sometimes and we just we would have like an hour or two of just recording random ass sounds and then another hour of two of putting them in GarageBand or Logic and then making pieces of music out of it. And I was like, damn, this is fucking fun. That's so cool. Yeah. So With no inclination of like, we're going to make a thing or going to do stuff. It was just nothing. pure creation. Just pure creation. That's so great. Yeah. We, we create the component parts and then we actually compose something with it, you know? And this I liked. And, you know, that's the thing. Even when I was in college, like my uh, composition professor was uh, David Durant. And he's done a lot of cool things with avant-garde music and I was still like learning about music theory and I was still honed on music theory at that time. So I couldn't even think about avant-garde music at that time, you know? <laughs> so it's, it was always in the back of my head being like, wow, improv, avant-garde, uh, that's weird music, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't know what to do, you know? So, um, in the nineties when Ned was doing his thing and, and I guess, I mean, he was he was doing some cool things in the '90s in Birmingham, and I think he uh, I think he got kicked out of City Stages one year for the for he had a um, group called the Damn I can't remember it's like something like the Kevorkian Skull Poets or something like that you know I can't remember what he called it. But, you know, they ended up going on stage in um, city stages and getting uh, basically shut down by the police because he had a song called Fubar America, you know, fucked up beyond all recognition. And and he, he disclaimered, he said before they started, he was like, 
there's foul language here, there's everything. If you don't want to see it, you need to leave, you know, and all the police are on edge, you know, and eventually they just started shutting him down and uh, he could tell you the story a lot better. Man, if you don't know Ned, uh, you need to meet Ned. And so he's still need... around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Ned, awesome. is, Ned is still around. That's he's... so crazy. I've never heard him mentioned. God, and man. all the people well, I've talked to him. So well, he's been super low-key for a while. He's yeah. been low-key for a while. But uh, that being said, Jess Marie knew Ned back in the day. Okay. So here I am working the cheese counter at Whole Foods. <laughs> and I had met Jess Marie doing some ceramic stuff in Montevallo a while back. She walks up to get some cheese. And recently, Ned and Ned had mentioned something about Jess Marie, and I was like, "Oh, I know Jess Marie." Well, then, literally the next day, I go to work. Jess Marie walks up and she says, "Hey, what you doing?" I'm well. I'm just, you know, ba da da this and that. I said, "I actually talked about you just yesterday with a friend," and she's like, "Oh yeah, what friend?" And I said, "You know Ned Mud," and she's like. You're friends with Ned? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm friends with Ned. And she's like, you make music with Ned? I was like, yeah, I make music with Ned. She's like, do you want to join our improv group? <laughs> like, okay, what's the group? You know, plus noise happens, you know, for me. She knows how to pick them for sure <laughs> and pick her moments. That's great. Yeah, she's, she's a, uh, man, she's a wonderful person. And uh, I really enjoyed working with her, you mm -hmm. know. I uh, really enjoyed her spirit and her energy. So that's how I ended up getting to Flu Snoiks. And um, now my relationship with Ned has been pretty constant since about 2014, probably. You know, we first uh, started hanging out, making a bunch of music, but then we got to talking about a lot of things, you know, and something that he has really helped me get experience on is the I Ching. Are you familiar with the I Ching? Yeah. So this is, um, I've spent a lot of time working with the I Ching since about 2014, 2015, and really getting to know what it's all about. And it's beyond uh, Buddhism, Confucianism, or Taoism. You know, it's actually more ancient than all of that. And uh, it first started as Oracle Bones being, you know, the divinations of shamans inscribing runes on bones and throwing them into the fire and seeing how they crack, you know. Mm -hmm. A lot of that gave way to what we know now as the I Ching. And essentially the I Ching to me is the most thorough navigational tool. What's going on in the world? What are the changes happening in the world? What are the changes happening within my life? And how can I navigate to a place of harmony within the two? And that is really what the I Ching is about to me. And uh, Ned kind of really opened up this world because it is, it is all based on duality. And you start to see that the concept of Tai Chi is based on that, you know? Like what we call the yin-yang symbol, its name is the Tai Chi too. You see, it is what Tai Chi is. And it is the... It's this. Yeah. I know people can't each, see this. Each essence holding its opposite. Ex exactly. Fitting together. Yeah. Exactly. And the concept is, and this is what really, I mean, I've had experiences with the I Ching that are undeniable. And so those are part of my own personal experiences. But when you think about the concept of even just numbers, and you would say that, you know, well, not only do you have two things that are working with each other, two forces that are 
working on. They have a relationship. You know, there, there's many different aspects of how these two forces work together, whether in uh, mutual arising, whether in um, uh, interdependence, whether in contradiction. There's just so many ways that the positive and negative forces work with each other. Mm-hmm. And you get to see that not only is it just the two, but when the two come together, it creates a unity. Yeah. So you have the unity, you have the unity that is comprised of two things which are actually unities in their own. But even further is that the two general principles with the unity gives birth to everything in the world. So you get from one to the two to the three and beyond the three, you just have iterations of one and two. You know what I'm saying? So you go four, you got two and two, you got five, you got well two and three, you know, you got six. I mean, and so you start to see, and this is uh, something in Oriental cultures, you'll, you'll read a lot that they're, they're always making reference to the 10,000 things, you know, and what are the 10,000 things? Well, that's just their way to say it's the, the infinite possibilities of everything that could happen. You know, the one gives way to the two gives way to the three and beyond that, the three gives way to the 10,000 things, you know, when I looked at that and I realized like, damn, this is a fully encompassing way of looking at life. I mean, you can take anything in and plug it into this system. You're like, wow, this actually checks out. Like anything. We could take the nature of our, our conversation right now. We could take the nature of the, the history of this house and the garden. And it's like, you can break it down into how all of these positive and negative energies have worked together to create the thing, you know? A uh, piece of art, piece of music, piece of food, whatever, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, this is a very valuable thing for me. This has uh, also made its way into The Flying Bird. Without going into too much detail, it's one of the reasons why I can't... I don't want to say, like, get rid of the idea of The Flying Bird, but it's just, like, it's just so ingrained into life. Like, the story is cool. It's about birds, you know, but there's just something so real beyond it, you know? And it's really what I was talking about earlier. It's like, where does the lines between art and life actually get blurred and become a thing, you know, the unity. (laughs) Yeah. When life saturates the art that you're doing, then you're on the right track. Exactly. You're not a Pisces, are you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. July 14th. Holy shit. (laughs) That's fascinating. Reading Carl Jung the last six months or so, I didn't realize the Pisces were a pair of those opposites. Mm. And of course, that goes into terrifying territory of Christ exists, the Antichrist ideal must exist, and all of that stuff that's an aeon. But <laughs> right. I, had, I had a feeling that that fascination went um, through you. For sure, man. That's amazing. I mean, when it comes down to it, what, what am I and what are you, you know? Take away time and space, then there's no difference between you and me. We're mm-hmm. part, we're the same thing. We're the same thing as this bottle of water right here. <laughs> Take away time and space. I mean, this is what dominates three-dimensional living, three-dimensional life. I speak. It takes time for my sound waves to get to your eardrum, <laughs> you know? Well, you take that away, and then my voice is your eardrum. Mm-hmm. We didn't come up with the flying bird story. It's some. It's fucking archetypal, man, and it, yeah. it appears throughout history, and... I think anybody who gets themselves open to it can realize it with anything that they do. Yeah, you know, we'll live it out. Yes, yes. I mean, Carl Jung really outlined what the archetypal symbols are, you know, and 
we have people like Joseph Campbell that comes around and really elucidates what the hero's journey is all about. You know, you get to realize that not only is the hero every one of us, but the hero is everything that exists. You know, everything that exists wants to be its own center. You know, there's that yogi, Paramansa Yogananda, he wrote Autobiography of a Yogi. And his little phrase, I just fucking love it. He just says it. Center everywhere, circumference nowhere. You know? Yes. Love it, man. Uh, you can't put it better than that. And it's like, really, we are just all these little centers of energy that if we want to, we can feed into our center. And we all have ego. I mean, shit, man. Like, when I'm with my dad, I can't control my ego. I fucking just let him have it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I can control my ego, but who the fuck am I? And you know, what is the ego? And it's like, well, I'm going to be, I have to, I have to deal with that, but eventually I'm going to deal with that. And uh, in a way that is a thing, but you know, when that little center gets to start reflecting all the other little centers and all of the little things that happen, then, then your center is no longer you, you're a reflection of everything that's around you, you know? You're the eyes looking everywhere and what they see. Exactly. It's been an absolute pleasure. I don't want to keep you for too long. Let's, uh, let's take this sweet ball of love and go make some music with it. Let's do it.
but where? How far? But why? Thank mm-hmm. you.